0: Al Jazeera podcast.
1: Calls grow louder to extend a fragile ceasefire and to allow more aid into Gaza. Hamas and Israel have been exchanging detainees and captives now since Friday. But what will it take to keep an agreement like this alive, let alone extend it beyond four days? I'm Nastasia Tay and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyze and help define major global stories. let's now bring in our guests. In Geneva, we have Fabrizio Carboni. He's the Near and Middle East Regional Director of the International Committee of the Red Cross. In Rome, Alastair Crook, a veteran negotiator himself who's mediated ceasefires between Hamas and Israel in the past too. And in London, we have Nimeh Soltani, a reader in public law at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. A warm welcome to you all. Thank you for being with us, gentlemen. I want to start about trust, because this... This whole way that the deal has been structured so far appears to be about building trust. So one side does one thing, the other side responds by releasing another group. So captives are released, then prisoners are released. Iteratively, it, it's, a, it's a slow process, one day at a time. Given what we've seen so far, Alastair, I'm gonna start with you. Where is trust at the moment?
2: There's never trust. <clears throat> you never have a trust. In, it's not a ceasefire, incidentally. What we're talking about is a Hudna or truce. A ceasefire has some legal connotations. Uh, but within a truce um, of this nature, you never have trust. Um, and first of all, there's always the problem of who who is speaking, who has the mandate. Now, it's probably pretty clear on the Hamas side that it's uh, Sinwar, not the people in noha and on the other side there seem to be a lot of cooks you in the kitchen you describe them all but the greatest problem with any siswa is to nail everything down beforehand and then it's passed over to someone like one of your guests here um, to try and implement it but you need to decide i mean first of all even simple things who are the people who are going to be exchanged what are their names are they alive, or are they dead? In one case, I had to do a negotiation and with Hezbollah. And, of course, Hezbollah said, well, we won't give you proof of life, because that will cost you. You'll have to release some more hostages in order to get that proof of life. And then you have the whole—the details of it, when it's going to take place, what is the ratio That is the most complicated. In the case of Gilad Shalit, it was 1,200 odd Israeli um, for one prisoner, uh, Shalit. Um, And um, so these are the main things. And always there's distrust. And by the way, there's already distrust about today's release. I see that now it's turned around, and the Israelis are saying that actually it's Hamas who's not allowing the humanitarian convoys to go to the north. And yesterday it was um, Hamas who was saying it was Israel not allowing the humanitarian convoys going to the north.
1: Uh, Alistair, you've said a lot there, and I want to dig into into all of that, But, but let me start with the last thing that you've raised, this he said, she said about who's obstructing Mm. aid. Uh, Let me throw this one to you, Fabrizio. I understand the the International Committee of the Red Cross, obviously you're involved um, with dealing with some of the captive releases, but you are, I understand, also dealing with some of the deliveries of medical aid that's taking place in Gaza at the moment. Now, Hamas yesterday was saying something like only 65 of 340 aid trucks that had entered Gaza had actually reached northern Gaza, Hamas was saying that's less than half of what Israel had agreed. Fabrizio, what is the holdup at the moment? We're obviously hearing different things from, from both sides.
0: You know, I I will go back to the question of trust, because I think this is key in, in such an environment. And... In this environment, everything is politicized. I would even say that everything is weaponized. And just your question about how many trucks comes in or not, who is responsible or not, is not just, a, I would say, a neutral question. This is a question and an answer which has consequences. It has consequences on who is respecting or not uh, an agreement. And that's where I think, as I, see, I see, and it's sometimes very... It's not understood. We need to find this space where we can't be seen as playing this game. Sure. Uh, and and it varies obviously from one moment to another into a conflict. The issues varies, but in this moment right now, I think if we agree that for us the most important thing today is to replace the absence of trust between parties, to allow the deal to take place. And the deals are different dimensions. We talk about the release. We talk about the assistance coming in. And so I think for us—and I repeat, is often misunderstood as not having opinion or not caring. That's not the point. The point today is that in all this crisis, you at least need one actor we shouldn't be permanently in the communication, in the judging, in giving opinion. Sure. And if there is a moment where we should, you know, keep this position it is right now.
1: Well, let me ask you then, Fabrizio, and I obviously understand that there are many questions that you can't be drawn on in order for ICRC to be able to, to do its very important job at the moment. We have been understanding and we've been hearing from you that you are being given lists of captives to be released every day. And I want to try to give our our viewers here a little bit of an insight into some of the logistics perhaps behind this process. So let me perhaps ask you a a factual question. At the moment, do you have any clarity at the moment on how many captives there are and who's holding them? Because Hamas initially had said that they, they weren't sure where they all were, they weren't sure of exact numbers. At this stage, do we have that list?
0: Uh, no, we don't have it, and it's day by day that it works. So every sure. day, we have a series of instructions, a series of, of information on places, on, on uh, who is going to be released, when, how. But um, so far, we don't have this, this general overview on uh, who is having who. So it's um, it's a day-by-day uh, exercise, which is sure. obviously very complex. So we don't have this overview.
1: And let me see if I can phrase this in a way that you're able to answer it. Do you have any sense of how the captives are being chosen? Obviously, we know that women and children were part of the deal. So um, where we're talking about civilian captives at the moment, Have you been given any sense of if, perhaps, those who who might need more medical assistance? We've obviously seen a lot of elderly captives being released. If if they're being prioritised, have any of those conversations been taking place with the ICRC?
0: No, and I think this is an important issue, is that we don't have access, uh, especially to uh, the hostages in Gaza. We have no knowledge of the detention condition. We have no knowledge on their well-being, we don't know where they are, we haven't seen them, and we repeatedly asked to see them, visit them, since I think day one. So for the time being, we are working in an environment which I would call not optimal. And you know, we are a humanitarian organization. We are not a logistic organization. And so for us, it's, it's sometimes very difficult to only do part of our humanitarian work. And today, we do part of our humanitarian work because we cannot visit, we cannot provide proof of lives to the family. And also, by the way, uh, on the Israeli side, we're not allowed to visit anymore the place of detention. So, we do our best in a very politicized environment, nothing to do with humanitarian action. We try, nevertheless, to preserve as much as we can a humanitarian space.
1: Okay, thank you for that, Fabrizio. I want to throw a question to Nimeh, because we've been talking a lot here about trust. Obviously, trust was pretty hard to find to even get to this point. But as we see both sides continue to point the finger at each other in terms of, of, I guess, smaller violations of what's perceived to be the deal, where is your assessment of where trust is? Could something as small as, as a blame game that we're seeing go on daily at the moment, could that derail the process? Or would it just potentially... Uh, or stop the idea of an an extension of the ceasefire?
3: Well, obviously, the the question of trust in the midst of a genocidal campaign against an essentially uh, civilian population is hard to find. So the question of ceasefire uh, is, uh, you know, broken down to kind of instrumental uh, element in a wider kind of uh, situation of uh, onslaught. If you remember in the uh, uh, what's the so-called protective Edge operation in 2014, we had a situation of uh, 17 ceasefires during 50 days of uh, military activity. And today we, the question is is this a, a short-term ceasefire or is it a long-term ceasefire? And the Israelis obviously uh, made it clear that it is a short term ceasefire. The, the way I see it, there are three main challenges to the ceasefire uh, uh, holding up. The first one, obviously, that this ceasefire from the Israeli side does not include any uh, cessation of hostile military activity in the West Bank. And we have at least six uh, Palestinians who were killed by Israeli uh, raids Mm -hmm. in the past few days since the ceasefire started. And uh, we need to remember here the context of the, uh, that set off the outbreak of violence on the 7th of October, which is that there was a violation of the status quo in Al-Aqsa and religious sites by the uh, far-right uh, uh, Zionist uh, activists, including members of the uh, Israeli government, as well as the, the uh, uh, thousands of prisoners who are languishing. Uh, for decades in Israeli uh, prisons. And thirdly, the pogroms and the settlers' violence in the West uh, Bank. So if these things continue, obviously that will uh, contribute to the fragility of any ceasefire arrangement. And then secondly, we have heard from the beginning uh, uh, of the ceasefire from the Israeli side, specifically the Minister of Defense, that they intend for this Mm. to be a short-term arrangement in which they continue the uh, what is essentially a one-sided onslaught in a situation of a gross uh, asymmetry of power uh, between the uh, two sides, and the what the, what exacerbates these issue issues is that we are in a situation that is somewhat uh, reminiscent of the 1967 war uh, inside Israel, in the sense that we have uh, a weak. Uh, political leadership, and Israeli uh, army generals are the ones who are actually setting uh, the tone. And behind them, there is a total mobilization of society, a society in war, with unrealistic Mm -hmm. uh, goals of eliminating Hamas, which became a cover for a a genocidal campaign. And the third element, I would say, for the uh, uh, ceasefire holding up is whether the U.S., who has been the main blockage for a ceasefire uh, resolution and the UN Security Council will finally uh, uh, respond to the uh, civilised world's uh, uh, demand that the uh, genocidal campaign in Gaza stops.
1: Nime, I-, I want to get into the diplomacy in just a moment, but let me pick up on something you said there. You were talking about this ongoing crackdown that we've seen too in the occupied West Bank. We've seen escalating arrests since October the 7th, thousands and thousands of people. now. Also, depending on how the next few days play out, we've already seen arrests over the last two days, the number of people detained by Israel over the course of of this four-day ceasefire could actually end up exceeding the number of people released, depending on how it all goes, obviously. How is this deal at the moment being viewed in the occupied West Bank? Is this... I mean, it's obviously not a violation of the ceasefire because the ceasefire covers Gaza, but is it perhaps a violation of trust?
3: Well, as you said, the, the difficulty with the language of ceasefire it, it obscures the situation of occupation, as the ICRC and other uh, UN and uh, legal authorities have uh, repeatedly said. Since two thousand and five, the so-called disengagement plan, that Gaza continued continues to be an occupied uh, territory, and only recently, uh, December last year, the UN General Assembly uh, referred the situation of the legality of Israeli control over the Palestinian uh, territories uh, in the West Bank, Israel and Gaza to the ICJ, the International Court of uh, Justice. So, and the problem with that is that the ceasefire language obscures the obligations of the occupying power towards the people of Gaza and uh, the West Bank and the rest of the uh, occupied territories, including medical and food supplies. So now the ceasefire arrangement is the one in which the Palestinians in Gaza are able to allow humanitarian uh, relief, allow uh, medical and food uh, supplies, even though Even in the more generalized situation, it is Israel, in accordance with the Geneva Conventions, that should be allowing uh, that kind of access unimpeded. In fact, only a few years ago, in 2018, the UN Security Council uh, uh, decided that starvation and the unlawful denial of humanitarian access cannot be uh, uh, permissible, a tool of uh, uh, warfare,
1: well, we've had we've we had see... a number of different aid agencies and UN agencies also criticised that the use of of starvation as as potentially being used as a weapon of war in this case. I just want to get back to to some of the nitty gritty parts of of this deal and, and just how it might evolve over the course of the next forty eight hours or so. Um, Alistair, I, I wanted to ask you a little more about something you mentioned earlier, this ratio that we've seen so far three to one in terms of Palestinian prisoners for Israeli captives. So, obviously, as I was saying, women and children being released on both sides so far. These are presumably easier captives to have a negotiation about, the women and children. When we get to, to men, when we get to, to soldiers, could that ratio change? You talked about the, the huge ratio in the Glad Shalit case, which you were involved in, uh, more than a 1,000 to one. Are those conversations taking place right now for, for what might happen after these releases over four days if they do continue?
2: Uh, No, they're not. Um, And I just want to go back and say we need to talk about two different things. Um, Really, we say, you know, that this is not, you know, a political exercise. The uh, IRDC has a very difficult, the Red Cross has a very difficult role of trying to be sort of in the middle of this. But of course, this is highly political in the sense that both sides are trying to use every element to, for psychological advantage to come out and look as if they won this exercise. And this is behind a lot of these um, problems that we get when they can be minor problems. And I just want to make it clear, of the ceasefires I did, I mean, most of them failed. One of them failed just on a statement by one person, right. and the whole thing collapsed. Another one was a, a, a car bomb going off during the ceasefire. Um, and that was a ceasefire, not a Hudna. And uh, the point about this is, you know, there are three open fronts, at least at the moment, facing Israel. And my lesson from doing these Hudnas was always, you can't have, if you like, quiet in one place. You can't have quiet in Bethlehem, and you have war going on in Hebron or Khalil or some other part of of the territories. It doesn't work like that. And so you have the West Bank, which is really on a a knife set at the moment. And always in these hudnas, you have a group or an element that is not in favor of the hudna continued. Yes, the world as a whole may be in favor of this and turning it from hudna into a ceasefire with some legal and go back to the legal uh, underpinnings to it. Um, But there are also people, and we know that in in Israel, who don't want it to continue because they want to get back to the um, war on Gaza. And they know that the longer this goes on, the harder it is to start that war again. And they're committed to restarting it. So I think always my feeling was that this was going to be a very short-lived uh, truce. Mm-hmm. Um, it may go on for four days, it may have an extra day or so, but I, uh, that will be very lucky if we get that far. Uh,
1: do you expect to see any further prisoner or captive releases beyond what's already been agreed? You, you say those discussions aren't, aren't taking place at the moment. There has obviously been hope well, that, that that might happen.
2: Well, there will be pressure from Israeli the families at least try and get all the children and the women out. But when it comes to the men, many of whom are military or from the settlements being trained by the IDF, then it's a completely different ball game. And then it is all for all in the terms of Hamas, i.e., all Israel's prisoners, Palestinian prisoners, of which are about 6,000-plus, in return for their holdings of the male, some of them military, including some of them very senior military Mm. um, hostages that they're holding in Gaza. Uh,
1: We have heard from Hamas that they were expecting more senior figures to have been released over the course of the last couple of days. I understand there there were people released who were only just weeks from the end of their prison terms, but they're being counted as part of that number. Uh, Let me go back to you, Fabrizio, because you've been very hands-on with this and obviously you're dealing with a huge amount of of tension with holding a very fragile ceasefire there and, and, and trying to to facilitate th- these releases and the aid going in as well. This is all being monitored, I understand, by an operations center that's being managed by Qatar. And, and this is all supposed to be happening in real time. There are supposed to be representatives of, of both sides involved in this. How is that working or, or not working?
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's a very sophisticated choreography. Uh, you have many moving parts, which condition one the one and the other. So, yeah, we now we are we have many colleagues um, embedded or in close contact with different part of this deal, and we need to make sure that um, we move according to what is agreed. So it's uh, it's complex. Um, and, and it's, it's happening in an environment um, of, of violence, distrust, and also um, an, a dramatic humanitarian environment. I think, yeah. you know, we're talking about releasing uh, people, women and children, in a place, Gaza, which is devastated, which is scared, because, as you said, it, it's a pause three, four, five days. And then what? So, it's um, emotionally also very loaded. It's also very tense, um, because we don't do that in a vacuum. We do that in Gaza, surrounded by people who are really struggling every day uh, to, stay, to stay alive. So I, I think that while this focus on the release is important, um, because it's an important humanitarian issue. And at the same time, we shouldn't lose perspective on the bigger picture, which is the six weeks of unbelievable violence, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: hundreds of thousands of people displaced, affected. And and you mentioned it, there is also the West Bank. And what is really hard for for us as humanitarian is it's not over. No, and, and we have a hard time, and I'm talking from the field perspective, not from my comfortable office in Geneva. Mm-hmm. I mean, where do we go? You know, what's the end game of, of all this disaster? So,
1: well, it's a well, bit of... I want to ask exactly that question that you've just posed, Fabrizio, to, to Nime, because... As you say, during these four days, we're, we're getting a bit more of an opportunity now with with a slightly better ease of movement within Gaza to see the full extent of the destruction that's taking place. And, and I've been wondering whether seeing that, seeing that being documented, is that changing perceptions or, or pressure on Israel to, to not only explain its endgame, but also potentially change the way that it conducts this war if, if it all does resume in the course of the next couple of days?
3: Allow me first to uh, make a comment on uh, Mr. Crook's use, uh, repeated use of the word hudna. I don't think using the word hudna is useful in this context. I think it only mystifies the issues at hand. We could have used the Hebrew word hafuga, and the use of the word hudna here merely uh, obscures the context, mystifies it and make it look as if as it's if, as okay. If it's Sorry, exotic. gentlemen, I,
1: I don't want to get into, into a semantics here because we, I don't want us to run out of time talking about this. So just to clarify for our viewers, hudna is a term that is often used, I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, by Hamas, for an extended ceasefire of sorts, a, a phase within a broader phase that could, at some point, lead to some kind of reconciliation. So let's, at this point... Talk about what what may be to come, rather than than focusing necessarily just on the word.
3: Yeah, I mean the word is ceasefire, and we need to be using this this word rather than make it look a little bit kind of uh, more uh, uh, unable to explain the exact situation and. It's, it's In terms of your question with respect to the uh, Israeli uh, use of uh, uh, virtually unlimited infliction of suffering on civilians in uh, the uh, Gaza in particular, but also on the West Bank, uh, the, pro- the main problem is impunity. So there have been different uh, campaigns in the past in which Israel also violated international law in terms of war crimes and crimes against humanity. And there was no uh, repercussions, there were no consequences, there was no accountability, despite the uh, 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 well-documented violation of international law by different human rights organizations, as well as the UN. So that's the first uh, issue here, that is international law and international legal institutions are now... Uh, suffering a major uh, setback in terms of any form of credibility, but also the fact that Western powers such as the U.S., the U.K., Germany, but also the E.U. are seen as enablers and complicit in the genocidal campaign that Israel is inflicting on on Gaza. And so long as there is no more pressure being uh, uh, exercised over Israel, we will see that even the southern part of Gaza uh, being exposed to the same kind of horrendous
1: Nima, uh, I'm, I'm going to jump in here. here. I, I'm sorry, because I, I do want to ask Alistair one, of the, one more question around what we've been discussing in terms of what might happen after these four days and also in terms of, of ex- existing international pressure. Because one of the things that... We've talked about a lot as what other parties are doing, but we haven't spoken a great amount about the agency of the Palestinian people, the the people in Gaza themselves. And, And, Alistair, as someone who's been a negotiator, who's been involved in a lot of these processes, at the moment, is there a sense of who might be the Palestinian representative of the people, not necessarily of a different political faction, but of the people of Gaza sitting at that table in terms of trying to define their own future? Is there a conversation about that, just very, very briefly?
2: Yes. If you've seen the videos, I mean, it was so striking. The energy, the resourcefulness, the sense of um, solidarity when the uh, prisoners, the Palestinian prisoners, were received in the West Bank. I think we are seeing something very different. And let's not forget, this is also being seen by the rest of the Islamic world, and it's changing it. Yes, Mm -hmm. it is changing it. It is creating a sense of cohesion, of communal effort. It is creating also a sense of national, a national project and an Islamic project together. The two have been separate for a long time, and Mm -hmm. now we're seeing them come together in a very powerful
1: way. And we'll see how those dynamics play out in the coming days and weeks and months ahead. Thank you very much for joining me here on Inside Story. Gentlemen, Alistair Crook, Fabrizio Carboni and Nimeh Sultani. And Fabrizio, we really wish you and the ICRC all the best with your work. This episode was produced by Damien Lay, Katia Lopez-Hodeyan, Veronica Pedrosa and Jimmy Getarhun. Studio sound was by Alvaro Galan, Madrid. The program was edited by Andre Oosthuizen, Zena Badr and Joda Frias. Do be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every one of our episodes. Thanks for listening and do tune in again for the next one.
2: We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.